We're continuing our reading in Romans chapter 2. We're starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light, yeah, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Thank you, Marcia. This morning, as Marcia just read, we're going to continue our sermon series uh, through the book of Romans. And so we've been here for a few weeks now, a couple months now, and we have a little ways to go. Um, so chapter 2, verses 17 through 29 is where we are this morning. As we get started this morning, I want you to think about a time in your life in which you were just really confident about something, that you were really sure about something, but then later on you find out that you were mistaken. Later on you find out that you were wrong, that, that, it, that what you thought was true wasn't really true. What you thought was true really wasn't accurate. And so for me, I think about sports a lot. Like I think my team's going to win or my team's going to lose, and I'm sure and I'm really confident that that's going to happen, and then they end up doing the opposite of what I was confident that they were going to do. I think about like going this past week to, to meet somebody for lunch, and uh, I was confident my mask was in my car, and so I just get in and drive to lunch, and then I get there, and I look all over the place for my mask, and I was mistaken. I was wrong. It was nowhere to be found. I think about uh, this couple weeks ago, Hannah had a class that started, um, well, I won't tell you what time it started. We, we were confident it started at 5.30. We were sure it started at 5.30, she was confident it started at 5.30. She was sure it started at 5.30. So we got there at 5.30. It started at 4.30. And so I'm sure, I'm confident that we're not the only family that does this, right? I'm sure I'm confident that there are others of what you were sure and confident 
Well, when it comes to things, when it comes to games and, and sports and all of that stuff, like, it's not really that big a deal if we're wrong. It's really not that big a deal if, if we're mistaken. Like, it, it's not the end of the world. But there are other things in our lives, and there are other things in, in this life that we better be sure of, and that we better be confident of, and we better make sure that we're not mistaken or that we're not wrong about those things. And one of those things is whether or not you're a Christian. One of those things is whether or not you're, you're sure, whether or not you're confident that you're right with God and that you're going to heaven when you die and that God's favor rests upon you. Like if, if you're sure and, and confident of that, but you later on discover you're, you're mistaken, oops, I was wrong. Like the implications of that and the significance of being wrong when it comes to that is far more severe and the implications are far more serious than being wrong about a sports game or what time a class started. And this is prevalent, isn't it? Like this is prevalent in this culture and in this country and in which we live. Like it, it's common for, for many people to, to believe, to be sure, to be confident that they're Christians, that they're right with God, that they're going to heaven when they die. And they're completely mistaken. They're, they're, they're completely wrong that they have this false assurance that, they, that they've been deceived. And I, I don't know what, like, if you resonate with anything that I'm saying here, if you agree with anything I'm saying here, but I firmly believe that there are tens of thousands of people within our city who are walking around this very morning or laying in bed this very morning who have a false assurance I firmly believe that there are hundreds of thousands and thousands of people who are even filling church buildings this morning who are deceived and have a false assurance. They're singing, they're praying, they're listening to sermons, they're taking the Lord's Supper, and they believe, they're confident, they're sure that they're a follower of Jesus, that they've been born again, that they're they're right with God, that they're going to heaven, and they're wrong. They're deceived, and they're mistaken. And it's just not people that are out there, but this could be true of people that are in here. That you're here this morning, you come to this church even regularly, you sing these songs, you pray these prayers, you confess these sins, these corporate confessions of sins, you listen to these messages, you come up later and you take the Lord's Supper, you're involved in a discipleship community, you serve on a ministry team, you give to this church and just continue to fill in the blank. And in doing so, you believe that you're a Christian, you believe that you're a follower of Christ, you're certain of that, you're sure of that, but you're deceived and your assurance is false, and you're mistaken, and that you're wrong. 
That's what we're going to see within this passage of Scripture this morning. That if you remember, we're in this section of of Romans that began in chapter 1, verse 18, that extends all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And the primary point of this section that we've been looking at is the negative side of God's in Gentile, then, are guilty before. In other words, one group doesn't get a free pass. Instead, both groups, apart from Christ, are equally condemned before God because of their sin. In our passage this morning then, what what Paul's going to do is that he's going to respond now to the objection or to the argument that the Jews make when they hear this. In other words, when the Jews hear that they stand condemned before God and that they're equally condemned and guilty before God and under the judgment of God, just like the Gentiles, here's the objection that the Jews raise. Paul you're nuts. Paul, there's no way that that's true. There's no way that we stand condemned before God. There's no way that we're under the judgment of God. There's no way that God is against us. We're the Jews. God is is for us. He's not going to pour out his wrath upon us. He's going to pour out his wrath upon them, the Gentiles, but not us, the Jews. He's for us. And so then within this passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul's going to explain why the Jews are mistaken. They're confident, they're sure that they're going to escape the judgment of God, that they're not under the judgment of God. They're confident and sure of that. And he's going to dismantle their objection. He's going to dismantle their, their assurance and the things that they're placing their confidence in. And he's going to show that they've been deceived and they're falsely assured And instead, they're truly under the judgment and the condemnation of God. And as we see this, here's my prayer for for us this morning. Is that God would use this passage of Scripture to to wake us up this morning. And specifically to wake anybody here this morning who who is being deceived in believing that they are right with God when in fact they're not truly right with God with God. So here's what we're going to see within our past this morning. We're going to see, you see this on your hand out there, but we're going to see two false foundations of assurance. Two false foundations of assurance. These are, these are the foundations, these are the, the things that the Jews were looking at to convince them that they were right with God, that they were in good standing with God, that they weren't under the judgment of God. And what we're going to see is that these foundations of assurance that the Jews were holding on to are the same foundations of assurance that many Christians, supposed professing Christians, are holding on to that makes them feel like they're they're confident in terms of their standing before God and that God is for them as well. So the first false foundation we're going to see is this. You see all this on your hand out there, but it's that Paul is going to remind us that, that knowing God's word and teaching God's word will not save you from God's judgment on the last day. So what we see starting there, look at verse 17 through 24, that within these verses here, in verse 17 through 24, what we're going to see, and you see this on your hand, is that the Jews believed that they were exempt from God's judgment because they possessed the law. That's what the Jews believed here. They believed that the law was one of the identifying markers of what it meant to be part of the people of God and God's chosen people. And so then since they were given the law by God, there was no way in their mind that God was going to judge them. There was no way then that God was going to pour out his wrath upon 
them. And so starting in verse 17 then, what Paul's going to do is he's going to dismantle this objection and dismantle this argument that the Jews believed. And the way that he does this, we see that in, in verse 17. Look there with me. He says this. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and, and rely on the law. Again, they were, they were relying upon the law. They, they believed that since God gave them, of all the nations on the earth, God gave the Jews the law. They were the recipients of the law. And because of that, then they believed that that shielded them from God and boasting God from the law, God's will. And since they'd been given the law, they were able to, Paul says, approve what is excellent. What that means is they were able to discern what was right from what is wrong. All because they were given the law. So then because they were given the law, they, they knew God's will. They were able to discern what is right from what is, what is wrong. And so they were convinced then that, that they, were the, they were the people of God. That was an identifying mark of being the people of, of God. So they knew God's will. But not only that, secondly, you see this hanging out there, they not only knew God's law, but they, they taught God's law as well. That's what he goes on to say there in verse 19. Look there with me. He says, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And so the, what Paul's referring to here is the role that God has given the Jews or to Israel as, as being a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. In other words, since the Jews were the ones who had, who had God's law, they, they then had the, what Paul refers to as the embodiment of knowledge and truth about who God is and what his will is and what God's desire and, and plan for for them was. And so since they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth, they were able to instruct and to teach those who are blind to the truth and those who are living in darkness and those who are foolish and ignorant of the truth and, and who Paul says are, are children. And he uses this word children probably in a figurative sort of way as those who are, sorry, children, but those who, are, who don't have knowledge and, and who are ignorant of the truth. And he, so he's using this in a figurative sort of way to refer to those sorts of, of people who need instruction. And so then this is, the, this is the special role then and position that God gave to the Jews because they were the ones who were given the law and therefore they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth and therefore they were responsible to teach and to instruct others who were foolish and who were figuratively children and who did not have the knowledge of truth. So then put all that together and think about this privileged status and role and position that God gave to the Jews. They were given the law. They possessed the law. They knew the law. They taught the law. But even in the midst of all of those privileges, there was something that was missing. And the something that was missing was this. You can see it on your hand up there. They didn't practice what they preached. And that's Paul's point starting there, verse 21. Look there with me. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, do you not live by, do you, do you not obey what you teach? Do you not live and sit under your teaching? In other words, I know you have the law. I know you know the law. I know you teach and instruct others in the law, but here's my question for you. 
Do you obey the law? Like, that's the crux of the issue. Do you practice what you preach? Then he gets even more specific there in the rest of verse 21. Look there with me. He says this. He asks them this. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? And the assumed answer is, yes, we steal. Verse 22, and you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And the assumed answer is, yes, we commit adultery. Then he says, ask this, he says, you who abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? And again, the assumed answer is, yes, we rob temples. Some get to the verse 22 here in that specific question about robbing temples and wonder, well, what's the connection? I, I see the connection between committing adultery and adultery, and I see the connection between stealing and, and, and not stealing and, and all that. But, well, they viewed idols as... But they, and you know what they would do with them? They would sell them to others. And so do you see the hypocrisy in that? They say idols are worthless, but then they go in and steal idols and sell them because they think they're worth something. And in doing so, they're demonstrating their hypocrisy. Or in other words, they don't practice what they preach. In verse 23 then, what Paul does is he kind of summarizes the hypocrisy of the Jews there in verse 23. Look there. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So again, they're, they're boasting, right? They're boasting in the law. They're boasting that they've received the law. They're boasting that they know the law. They're boasting that they teach others in the law. And because of that, then they're They're convinced that God is for them, that God's favor rests upon them, but the reality is they're mistaken. And the reason that they're mistaken is because even though they know the law, and even though they've been given the law, and even though they teach the law, they don't practice the law. They don't practice what they preach. And as a result then, did you see what Paul says there in verse 23 and 24? Since they don't practice what they preach... He says that they dishonor God and they blaspheme the name of God. And what he means by name is the reputation. They blaspheme the reputation of God among the nations. And you see the connection there? How do they blaspheme the name of God or the reputation of God among the nations by not practicing what they preach? Well, they do so by living such hypocritical lives that they claim to be the chosen people of God. They claim to be God's people. They claim to be the true people of God. But they don't practice what they preach. And so then the surrounding nations look at the Jews and the nation of Israel, and they see their hypocrisy, and they're like, we don't want anything to do with their God. Their God must be cheap. Their God must be trivial. Just look at the hypocrisy of his people. They say this, but they live like this. So, do do you see the, the huge warning in these verses here for us this morning? Especially for a group of people like, who know God's word. Like, we take notes when God's word is preached. Like we, we, 
we corporately read God's Word together. We spend like 45, 50 minutes preaching God's Word, listening to God's Word. We gather together in discipleship communities each week to talk about God's Word. We set aside times in the morning to read God's Word, to memorize God's Word, to meditate on God's Word. Like if there's anybody who who knows and teaches God's Word, it's like us. It's, It's us. And because of that, it can lull us in this false sense of assurance that because we do all these things, we're good with God. We're Christians. We're right with God. And that there's no way that God is against us. But the reality is the Jews thought all those things as well. And they were sadly mistaken. And so then what's the warning here for us? Well, the warning here for us is threefold. Equating salvation. We must beware, excuse me, of equating salvation by God with knowledge about God. In other words, just as the Jews had the law, they knew the law, they were still under the judgment of God. And the same could be true of of us. You can know the Bible. You can know a lot of theology. You can have a lot of verses memorized. You can answer all the theological questions that people might ask you and still go to hell. The second warning then is this. We must beware of equating salvation by God with ministry for God. In other words, just because I'm a pastor or just because you're a pastor, just because you're a seminary professor, just because you're a missionary, just because you're a Bible study teacher, just because you're a discipleship community leader doesn't mean you're a Christian. And doesn't mean that you're saved from the judgment of God. And said, you can do a lot of ministry for God and teach a lot of people the Bible and you can share the gospel with a whole lot of people and you can travel to all sorts of unreached people groups all over the world and still not be a Christian and still go to hell. Like this is the warning that that Jesus gave, right? In, In Matthew 7, starting in verse 22, he said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Meaning, didn't we do a lot of ministry? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The third warning then is this. We must beware of not practicing what we preach. Many of you know who, who Martin Lloyd-Jones is, famous great preacher from 20th century British preach, preacher, but he once asked these penetrating questions. He asked this, he says, as you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you, otherwise it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. 
That's the danger that the Jews fell into. And that's the danger that each and every one of us, who most of us in this room, who love the word, who know the word, who even teach the word, we can know it, we can teach it, but that's not enough. The question is, the real indicator, the telltale sign isn't how much Bible you know or how much ministry do. The telltale sign, whether or not you're a Christian is, do you practice what you preach? In other words, if you preach grace, do you extend grace to others? Are you gracious to others? If you preach love, are you patient with others? Are you humble toward others? Are you compassionate toward others? If you preach and rail against sexual immorality, do you look at porn? Do you lust after others? If you preach pro-family, do you serve and love and care for your spouse? Do you love and serve and care for your kids, your parents, your siblings? If you preach against legalism, do you make people earn your love or weigh all these burdens down on others with your, with your rules that you impose upon them? Like again, seriously, do you practice what you preach? What would those at your workplace say? Would they say that what comes out of your mouth about what you profess and what you claim to believe, would they say you back it up with how you live at work? What about your wife, your children, your roommates at home? Would they say that the songs that you sing and that the, say that that's true at home perfectly practice what we preach? Like we're, we're all sinners in, in different ways. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not the person that Paul has in mind here. Instead, what Paul's talking about here is the ongoing, regular, consistent pattern of hypocrisy in which you don't practice what you preach, in which there's no shame, there's no remorse, there's no repentance, just ongoing hypocrisy. And here, here's the thing I want us to remember. Do you remember in verses 23 and 24 then what the effect of this sort of hypocrisy is? Not only is your reputation slung through the mud by, by not practicing what you preach, God's reputation is slung through the mud because you don't practice what you preach. In other words, when people look at you and they, they see you saying one thing and doing another, they see you saying you love this God and worship this God and trust in this God and follow this God, but they, then they see you living this sort of hypocritical life that's complete contradiction of what you say you believe. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking your God is a fraud. They're thinking, if, if that's the effect that, that that God has on a life, I don't want that God. I don't want anything to do with that God. And they, they malign the reputation of God because you don't practice what you preach. That when we don't practice what we preach, we don't only ruin our reputation, we also ruin the reputation of God. So, that's the first false foundation of assurance. The Jews thought they were possessors of the law they knew the law, they taught the law, and they thought they were, they were good. And it's easy for a professing Christian to fall into the same trap and have that same sort of false assurance because you have a lot of Bible knowledge and you do a whole lot of ministry. The reality is that's not a, that's not a true foundation 
of assurance that anybody should have that they're in right standing with God. This then leads to the second false assurance, false foundation of assurance that Paul reminds us of in this passage, which is this. It's, it's that doing religious deeds and traditions will not save you from God's judgment on the last day. That doing religious deeds and traditions will not save you from God's judgment on the last day. This is the practical application that we're going to see starting in verse 25 through verse 29 in the second section of the passage. That not only did the Jews believe that they were exempt from God's judgment because they were given the law and they possessed the law, in verses 25 through 29, we're also going to see that the Jews believed that they were exempt from God's judgment because they were circumcised. In other words, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 17, we're not going to look there, but if you look at Genesis chapter 17, circumcision was a sign of of being a Jew and being part of the covenant people of God. And if you were a Jew and part of the covenant people of God then, then that means that God is for you, he's not going to judge you, he's not going to condemn you, and so that's that's what the Jews thought. They thought, they equated, they thought they were circumcised, and therefore that meant that since circumcision was a sign of being part of the people of God, they thought then that that equaled then salvation. They weren't going to be judged, they weren't going to be condemned by God, and therefore since they were circumcised, they were in right standing with God. What we're going to see then in verses 25 through 29 is Paul's going to correct them. Paul's going to correct them, and he's going to show them how circumcision doesn't automatically equal salvation. And so that's what we're going to see. Look at verse 25 there. Paul says this, and let me say this before we jump into this. This is like tough treading, right? Like your, your mind should hurt after you read through these verses. So they're hard and the law roaring wrath. Circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, if you break the law then, he's, he's basically saying, you're no different from an uncircumcised Gentile who is outside the covenant people of God. Verse 26. So, if a man who is uncircumcised, so he's talking about a, an uncircumcised Gentile who is outside the covenant people of God, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The answer there is is yes, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. In other words, he's asking, will this uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the law, will he be considered part of the covenant people of God? Because he keeps the precepts of the law. And what we're going to see, the answer is yes, he will. Verse 27 then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and uncircumcision but break the law. Meaning the uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the law will judge and condemn the circumcised Jew who breaks the law. So again, that's like going through the roaring rapids. That's some tough treading there. But, but here's, the, here's the summary point. Here's the main point, the main takeaway here of, of what Paul is saying here. And you see it on your hand out there. What he's saying is this. He's saying what determines whether a person will be saved from God's judgment on the last day is whether or not they've been circumcised. It's, it's not whether or not they've been circumcised. It's whether or not they obey. 
Everybody with me? Another way to say that is this, the identifying mark of a person who will be saved at the final judgment isn't circumcision. It's obedience. That's the point of verses 25 through 27. In verses 28 and 29 then, Paul makes this a lot more clear. Well, I don't know how clear it is, but he tries to make it a lot more clear. And this is what he says in verse 28. He says this. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Meaning just because you're a born Jew or just because you're an ethnic Jew doesn't mean you're really a Jew. In other words, it doesn't mean you're truly part of the covenant people of God. It doesn't mean you're a true Jew in the spiritual sense. Then he says, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Meaning just because you've been circumcised outwardly and physically doesn't mean you've been truly circumcised. Instead, there's another circumcision that Paul's referring to here. That's a spiritual circumcision, not an outward physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision that a person must go through in order to be part of the covenant people of God. And he explains what that other circumcision is in verse 29 that makes somebody a true Jew and part of the people of God. Look at verse 29. Your brain should be hurting at this point. He says, but a Jew, meaning a true Jew in the spiritual sense, not an ethnic Jew, one who is born a Jew, but a true Jew in the spiritual sense, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. The letter here that he's referring to is a reference to the law that required physical circumcision. And he says this, he says that his praise is not for man, but from God. So what in the world does mean by all of that? Well, here's what he means. You see it on your hand up there. Trying to sum all of this up, verse 28 and 29 up. It's what he means. He means this. Saying, what makes someone of God who is on the outside by the Spirit? In other words, here's what all this means. Here's how you can tell whether or not someone is ultimately a Christian or not. Here's how you can tell whether or not somebody is, is really saved or not. It's, it's not by looking at their ethnicity. It's not by trying to figure out if, if they're an ethnic Jew or, or not an ethnic Jew. It's not by figuring out whether or not they've been circumcised or, or not circumcised. It's not by figuring out whether they obey these religious traditions and these religious rituals and, and gone through these religious customs. Instead, the way that you can determine whether or not somebody has truly been saved and is truly a Christian is by looking at their heart. It's by looking at their heart and asking this question. Has God supernaturally reached into their heart and circumcised their heart and given them a new heart? Has he done that? If not, they're not a Christian. They're not a part of the people of God. If so, they are. And so ask that question about yourself. Has God 
reached supernaturally, initiated and performed a miracle of circumcision in your heart and giving you a new heart. Like, like salvation, here, here's the key here. Salvation is a work from the inside out. It's not a work from the outside in. It, it's not something we do or boxes we check or religious rituals or traditions we perform or something that we just like conjure up on our own. Instead, salvation is an is a inward conversion. It's an inward heart transformation in which God supernaturally transforms our hearts and gives us a new heart. Because of that then, this is huge here, because of that then, we can say that, that, that being a Christian isn't becoming a nicer person. Being a Christian isn't becoming a more religious person. Instead, being a Christian is becoming a new person that is initiated and accomplished by the supernatural, miraculous work of God in circumcising your heart and giving you a new heart by His Spirit. And here's the kicker in all this. Do you know how you can tell whether or not that's happened? Do you know how you can tell whether or not God has worked that miracle in your heart? Because with, it's because with a new heart comes new desires, new longings, new affections, and a new obedience. That's how you can tell. That, that doesn't mean that you never struggle anymore. So I'm definitely not saying that. But here's what it does mean. It means you're new. It means you were this, and now you're this. It means you were this, and somehow he supernaturally transformed you into this. You're new. You're not what you were. And because of that, now the overall trajectory of your life, it's not characterized by what it once was characterized by. And you don't consciously now abide in sin anymore, deliberately remain in sin anymore, and happily make it a practice. That doesn't mean you never sin. It means you don't happily and consciously fight against flag and surrender in a new heart. Like all of that is, is evidence that you've been given a new heart. Or another way to say it, the evidence that you've been given a new heart is that you practice what you preach. You, you, you don't, this is huge, like, don't be confused here. Like, you don't obey in order to get a new heart. You obey because you've been given a new heart. You flip those around, there's bad trouble. But this is what God promised all throughout the Old Testament, right? Over and over and over and over again. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. God says this, he says, this, this is a promise. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And here's what will happen. 
as a result of God giving you a new heart by His Spirit. He says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what happens when God works the supernatural miracle of circumcising our hearts. That's the circumcision that identify, that's the identifying mark of the true people of God. It's not an outward physical circumcision. It's an inward circumcision of the heart that then manifests itself in a life of obedience and practicing what you preach. Being physically circumcised, belonging to the right ethnic group of people, knowing God's word, teaching God's word, none of those things are identifying marks and evidence that a person is truly a Christian and saved and been born again. The only evidence that Paul speaks about here is the question of, I don't care if you prayed a prayer when you were eight. I don't care if you walked an aisle when you were 10. I don't care if you raised your hand to receive Christ at a youth camp. I don't care how many times you've read your Bible. I don't care how many verses you've memorized. I don't care how many times you've shared the gospel or how many countries you've visited on mission trips. None of the, God says none of those things are reasons and evidence that a heart has been regenerated and made new. Instead, the identifying mark of a true follower of Christ, of a person who is truly Christian and saved, is that God has supernaturally circumcised your heart, giving you a new heart with new longings, new affections, new desires, and a new life of obedience, which causes you to begin to practice what you preach. If that's, if you hear that this morning, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's, if that's me. I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm unsure. I, 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 I don't know. So, so what do I, what do, what do I do? Like, how do I respond to a message like this? Like, well, gee, thanks for the positive, uplifting message this morning. Like, wow, felt good coming in, you know? What do I do? Well, here's what you do. You trust in Jesus. You trust in Jesus. In other words, the only way you can receive a new heart is through Jesus. Like, here's the... You claim to be a Christian of God, holy God of the universe. You're deserving of God to pour out His just wrath and judgment upon you. But the good news is this. This is why Jesus came. Like Jesus came to substitute Himself on the cross in the place of hypocrites and to take the judgment of God that, that you deserve, that the hypocrites deserve in their place by substituting himself and taking the wrath of God that you deserve in his place, in your place. That that's the good news. And like that can be yours this morning. 
If you turn from your hypocrisy and you turn to Christ, and if you rely upon his substitutionary death on the cross alone for your salvation and for your, the basis of your salvation, that you know you deserve judgment, but you know that Jesus received your judgment for you. And therefore, the only way that you can be confident and sure that you're going to escape it is because of what he substituted himself in your place for you. And the reality is those who turn from their hypocrisy and turn and rely upon Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection alone for their salvation, guess what? They'll be given a new heart. God will circumcise their heart. And with a new heart comes a new life of obedience. I close with these words. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. We read these verses earlier, but this is what Paul says in in Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. He says this. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having meaning he circumcised your heart, he gave you a new heart, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Oh, this is where true assurance and true confidence can be It's not found in all these other things like the Jews were looking to. It's ultimately found in God working a supernatural miracle, giving you a new heart that manifests itself in a life of love and life of obedience as you seek to follow him. And all of that is ultimately accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Christ and us turning from our hypocrisy and placing our faith and our trust in him. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage that you've given to us, these warnings that you've given to us in your word. And God, I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody even here this morning that walked in here falsely assured, Lord, who walked in here confident and sure that they're a Christian, that they're they're saved, that they're right with you, for, for reasons that are unfounded, that they've walked in here deceived, they've walked in here mistaken, they've walked in here confident in something that wasn't true of them. I pray that through the truth and the preaching of your word that we've seen within this passage, that you would wake them up even right now in their seat, that you would cause their blind eyes to see And that you, by the empowerment of your spirit, would work a supernatural miracle in their heart this very second and give them a new heart and circumcise their heart.